0: If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, be in chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. If you're visiting us this morning and you didn't bring a Bible, it's found on page 1048 in the Bibles in the chairs. And if you do not own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 to 28. And if you are able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with the holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. In 1501, a young Italian artist named Michelangelo won the bid to sculpt, won the bid to sculpt from marble, the biblical figure, King David. After winning the bid, this artist, he began to work. He worked and worked and worked laboriously on this marble to create the sculpture of King David. And it took him roughly about three years. In 1504, his work was completed and a masterpiece was created. And boy, was it a masterpiece. It was so detailed. The work was tremendous that people from all over traveled to Italy to see this work of art. Well, in an interview, Michelangelo was asked about the difficulties in carving this sculpture, to which he simply responded. He said, it's simple. I just removed everything that is not David. It's simple. I just remove everything that is not David. Michelangelo's response is profound, and as I think about it, as it rings in my ears, I can't help but think about God's work of sanctification in the life of all Christians. Michelangelo made a masterpiece, and he's a sculptor. He was a sculptor, and God is the great master sculptor. And for all who are in Christ, God is sculpting us and conforming us, not to an image of a statue, but to the image of Christ, our Savior. He is pruning and purging and cleansing us from everything that is not Jesus. He has promised that he would do it. He predestined us for this very end. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says, And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. God has promised it. He has predestined this very work. And the passage this morning declares, gives us the assurance that God will complete it. Paul makes that abundantly clear to this congregation. So our big idea for this morning's passage is this. God will complete your sanctification. God will complete your sanctification. If you're in Christ, you don't have to wonder if he will. It is Certain. In our passage, I have two points in their words of exhortation for us. First, trust God's sanctifying power, trust God's sanctifying power. Second, tend to God's people. Tend to God's people. So trust God's sanctifying power and tend to God's people. And so Paul, he is wrapping up this letter, the first letter that he has written to this church. It's important for us to remember that he is concerned about the congregation's sanctification. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, he makes known That he wanted to see them face to face to complete what was lacking in their faith. Well, he's laboring towards that very end through this letter. And so he's been giving exhortations in the second part of this letter. and He concludes the letter with a hopeful benediction. Brings us to our first point, which, full disclosure, it will be our longest point. Okay? First point. Trust God's sanctifying power. Look at verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, he concluded with a prayer to God. Calling him the God of peace because through the gospel, God has given us peace with Christ, through Christ. And it is the greatest peace that one could ever experience. The greatest peace that one could ever know. And he prayed about our sanctification. Now, if you journeyed with us throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians, you may have picked up that this prayer echoes what Paul prayed in chapter 3, verse 13. Where he says, may he, being the Lord, make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Paul prayed for this church's sanctification. Their progress, theirs and our progress in holiness. For the word sanctify means to make one holy or to make holy. And it's important because God is holy. God is holy. You know, we live in a age where people are unapologetic about their identities, like I'm unapologetically black. Some folks will probably say they're unapologetically athletes. Well, God is unapologetically holy. And he makes that abundantly clear throughout the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 6, the angels are declaring to one another as they cover their faces that God is holy, holy, holy. The prophets, as they preach to Israel, one of the things that they continue to make known is that God is holy. They're in Jesus' earthly ministry, even demons. His very own enemies confess that he is the holy one. Beloved, God is holy. He's completely set apart from all creation as he is the only creator. And he is perfectly pure. No sin, no flawless, no no flaw, no darkness is within God. Not even an ounce of it. Scripture says that God is light. He is holy, and he is pure. And that is a very good thing. But it does present a problem for us. Because we are unholy. The fall really did do a number on us. To where, like the name of J. Cole's first album, We Are Born Sinners. We have a... We're born with a guilty standing, and we have a corrupt nature. The Dutch theologian Herman Bavinck would say this way. He said, sin is guilt and pollution, and neither of which we can fix in and of ourselves, but both of which God, by his power and in his love and grace, can and has through the finished work of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the gospel, God has dealt with our guilt by nailing our sins on the cross of Christ, to where he has taken away our guilt for all who have placed their faith in Jesus. We no longer have a guilty standing. Instead, in Christ we have been justified by faith declared righteous. God has dealt with our guilt through the gospel. God has also dealt with our corrupt nature. See, in Christ, we have a holy standing. We stand sanctified. 1 Corinthians chapter thir- 1, verse 30 says that Jesus Christ became to us sanctification. The great hymn writer would say it this way. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side, which flowed, be of sin the double cure. Saved from wrath and make me pure. Beloved, our problem is our sin, and the solution is the righteousness and the wounds of Christ our Savior. So, if you're visiting us this morning, friends, I am glad that you are here. I want you to know that the Christian message isn't work harder, it is not do better. It's the fact that you and I, we are sinners. We have rebelled against a holy and righteous God who will by no means clear the guilty. There's absolutely nothing you and I can do in and of ourselves to save ourselves from God's holy wrath. As we sung in oh, Come to the Altar, forgiveness, it is costly and it was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. God in his love sent his son and Jesus atoned for our, de- our sins through his death and resurrection. Our message is is that you need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. Trust in him this very day that you may be forgiven and saved by the grace of God. If you want to talk more, you can talk with our members after service. We love having conversations about the gospel in Christ Jesus. Beloved, we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. We have a holy standing. By the grace of God, he has made us his covenant people, and he has given us a holy calling. We have this positional holiness. And so now, God, through the power of his Spirit, goes to work in us, sanctifying us that we may be holy in our person and holy in our practice. As Bavinck said, through the work of sanctification, God delivers us from sin's pollution. Paul says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Paul prayed that God would sanctify us because sanctification is a work of God. There is no holiness apart from him, and he is the source of our sanctification. Jesus himself prayed in John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. God sanctifies us through his word. And beloved, since that is the case, how much more are we to be in the word of God? It is the very means of our growth in Christ. Now, it's important for us to know That though Paul is praying for God to sanctify us completely, that doesn't mean that we play no role in our sanctification. The wrong application would be, well, since God's going to do it, I'm just going to do nothing. That would be incompatible with the teachings of Scripture. God requires and commends for us to pursue holiness in full dependence upon him. Philippians chapter 2 says, work out, your soul and sal- work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Hebrews chapter 12 verse, holy- verse 14 says, pursue holiness, for without which no one will see the Lord. So we are to put work Mind you, Paul is writing these exhortations to this congregation, exhorting them to pursue holiness. So we are to pursue it. Now some of you, you may be wondering, well, if we're to pursue holiness, then how do we begin this pursuit? But the way we begin is not how many people would think. It's a bit counterintuitive, because some may think that well, what that means is that I need to go out and I need to start doing this and work with my own hands. Well, that's not how we actually begin. The way we actually begin the pursuit of holiness is as we first start with beholding Jesus Christ by faith. You know, I'm a huge fan of superhero movies. Huge fan, definitely the Marvel. I'm a Marvel guy. I love most of the Marvel movies, not all of them. Uh, And I really can't rock with DC movies, (laughs) like for real. Been to a few, wasted my money. And so I wait until it comes on Redbox if I'm going to watch it. (laughs) But though I'm not a huge fan of the DC movies, I will say one of the best superhero movies is a DC movie, The Dark Knight. You know, Christian Bale, he played an outstanding Batman. And Heath Ledger, my goodness, he did a wonderful job playing the Joker. I mean, everybody gave Heath his flowers. Sadly, he has passed away when he died. But, like, man, everybody gave Heath his flowers. And Heath Ledger, in preparation to play this role, it is reported that he locked himself in a hotel in his hotel room for one month. And he studied the character of the Joker. He studied the Marvel comics. He was seeing that the Joker walks this way. The Joker laughs this way. The Joker talked this way. So he studied it. He began to imitate it. See, what Heath did, he beheld the Joker. Then he began to imitate the Joker until he became the Joker. And, beloved, in case you haven't picked up what I'm putting down, what I'm saying is if we're going to grow in holiness, it first begins with us beholding Jesus Christ by faith. And where do we behold him? We behold him where he has specifically revealed himself, it is through the scriptures. And so we are to immerse ourselves in this word studying it and seeing Jesus throughout the Bible. The Old Testament pointed to him. We read of Jesus' life through the Gospels. We read of his teaching and living in light of uh, his coming through the the epistles. We had to immerse ourselves in the Scriptures beholding Jesus Christ, seeing his love for the Father, seeing his love for our neighbors, seeing his obedience seeing his sacrifice his endurance his compassion so we start with beholding him and then we seek to imitate him that is how we grow in Christ likeness 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 says we all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the lord they're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. We become more and more like what we behold. So if we're going to grow in likeness, we must first behold Jesus by faith. Paul prayed for us to be sanctified through and through. Look at verse 23 once again. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul prayed for the totality of our being to be sanctified, body and spirit, material and immaterial. The entire person, because our entire person has been impacted by sin. Beloved, in sanctification, God purifies every part of us that sin has polluted. Let me say that again. In sanctification, God purifies every part of us that sin has polluted. Christ has purchased us with his blood. We are his. Which means that now we're to pursue holiness... In all areas of our lives, with our speech, with our conduct, what we do with our bodies, all of it matters because Jesus has purchased us. So, what that means is that our speech is to be set apart to the glory of God. But we don't berate our spouse, our children, our neighbors, our roommates or our co-workers, because we know that it displeases God. Instead, we want our words to be edifying, to be constructive, to be used to build up, to be for the good of those who are hearing. It also means that we exercise self-control with our bodies. Paul got at this in First Thessalonians chapter 4, that you know how to control your own bodies in holiness and in honor. So we stay away from every form of sexual immorality. We exercise self-control, not pursuing drunkenness. And what we do with our bodies matters because Christ has saved us by his grace. Scriptures make known that there are moral and ethical implications that pertain to our sanctification. First Peter chapter one verse fifteen and sixteen says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all 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 your conduct. For it is written, You shall be holy as I am holy. And Paul makes known that our sanctification it is a lifelong progress. He says, now may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what this means is that God will keep us and sanctify us to the very end. And what that end is, it is the return of Jesus Christ. Sanctification is a lifelong process, so what that means is that there is always more of Christlikeness for you and I to grow in. That every day you and I awake, the process is incomplete. Which means that we're not to be complacent in our pursuit of Christ likeness. Now, most of us know the areas or some areas by which we can grow in. Some of us, you may be unaware, you may be further along than. Most of us, myself included, you're further along than me, and so you're probably unsure as to where you can grow in. I would say if you're unsure, then ask fellow brothers and sisters who know you best. What areas am I lacking? What areas do I need to grow in Christ likeness? Now, if they don't be real with you and shoot you straight, a question for you to consider. Is where the areas of my life where it's the hardest for me to trust and obey God. Those would be the areas that you can grow in. Is it not loving the world? Are you too attached to it and materialism to where you are storing up treasure for yourselves on earth? Do you struggle to resist greed or content in your season of life? Where is it for you? Wherever it is, know that the Spirit is able to help us in our weakness. Paul makes known that there is an end in sight in our sanctification, and that end is the coming of Jesus. Beloved, our risen and reigning Savior will, will, will come again. It has been iterated throughout this entire letter. Paul is beating that drum, making sure that they remember that Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when he comes, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Through a, by the grace of God, we will be freed from the presence of sin. We will be completely purified. We will look just like our Savior. This is part of the finished work that God has accomplished through Christ, and he will bring it to completion at the return of Jesus. He has predestined us for this. The Spirit is at work in us right now, conforming us to the likeness of Christ, and it is to be what we actively pursue. Because God has made us new creations in Christ Jesus, removing the heart of stone, giving us the heart of flesh. He has placed his spirit within us. He has loved us greatly. And so in response to his love, we live for Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is to bolster our resolve to pursue likeness. Know that one day we will be like him. So what that means for us is that there is no place for complacency in our sanctification. God has not given any of us a permission slip to be persistent in being lazy in our sanctification. He has not given us a permission slip to persistently refuse to pursue Christ-likeness. It's not to say that we don't sin or we don't wrestle with sin and temptation because we do. We live in this body of flesh, but that is to say that our response to it is repentance. We don't get comfortable with sin because we know that it displeases the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Beloved, how would you describe your pursuit of Christlikeness? What adjective would you use to describe it? The reality is, where there is persistent laziness and a refusal to pursue being like Jesus, it should sober us. It should sober us truly. The ongoing refusal should lead us to not be comfortable, but Uncomfortable. To where we truly obey the scriptures and test ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. Beloved, if laziness and refusal to pursue holiness describes you, I would encourage you to repent, to turn away from it, to seek the Lord and plead for God to change your heart. I'd also encourage you to confess it to another member that they may help you pursue Christ's likeness out of a love for you and for your soul. Paul goes on, he gives us a sweet assurance. Look at verse 24. It says, he who calls you is faithful, he will do it. There's confidence in the completion of our sanctification, but it's not rooted in our faithfulness. Instead, it's rooted in God's nature. Scripture says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. God is faithful. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. And by his grace and in his love, he has effectually called us to Christ in our salvation. And because he has called us, he will not drop us. Hear now the unchanged, unbreakable links of our salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he is also called, and those whom he called, he is also justified, and those whom he justified. He has also glorified. Beloved, that means that God will, will, will complete his work of sanctification in us. If he called us, he will glorify us. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, For I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God has given us a sweet assurance to where we don't have to wonder whether or not he will keep us and sanctify us to the very end. There's no place to call into question God's faithfulness because he will surely do it. Now, some of us, we doubt God's faithfulness to do it because we project our unfaithfulness and the unfaithfulness of others on God. Some of us operate from the perspective that because we have been unfaithful, because we have broken promises, because people have let us down, we begin to doubt whether God will keep his promise and keep us to the very end. Start so wondering, will he? Well, beloved, rest assured that he will. God is not like us. There is an eternal gap between God and man. God is faithful. He will keep every promise, and God is holy. There is no sin, no evil, no deceit in God. So in the words of the poet Jackie Hill Perry, because God is holy, that means... He will not lie. And so his word can be trusted. And what that means here is that he won't drop you. He will keep you to the very end. He will complete his work of sanctification in us. And so that gives us, it frees us up to pursue Christ's likeness with confidence. Because we know that one day we will be like Jesus. God's track record is 100%. Every promise made is a promise kept. So we should praise God knowing that he will complete his sanctifying work. It should also lead us to pray all the more for him to continue to do it in us and in one another. Beloved, this truth right here is not only true for us personally. It's true for everyone in Christ that God, who is faithful, will complete his sanctifying work in all of us who are in Christ. So what this means is that when we see the shortcomings of our fellow brothers and sisters, we can pray with confidence, knowing that God will sanctify them. Knowing that God will grow them in, the, in his timing in those specific ways, not only them, but also us. Beloved, what's wonderful about this truth is that many of us may think that God has given up on us, but this truth makes it abundantly clear that he has not nor will he. He hasn't forgotten you, for he will certainly complete his sanctifying work in you. And so, beloved, we can trust God's sanctifying power May we do so, for he who promised is faithful. May it also lead us to look outwardly, being not only concerned about our sanctification, but being concerned about the sanctification of fellow brothers and sisters. May it lead us to tend to fellow church members. Look at verse 25. Brothers and sisters, Pray for us also. So, Paul, who has prayed fervently and continuously for this congregation, he is now asking for them to pray for him. Here we see that Paul was humble. Notice that this is an apostle. And though he was an apostle, he knew that he needed the prayers of others. In other letters, he specified his prayer requests. You see, Paul is exhorting us for our prayers to go beyond ourselves, exhorting us for our prayers to extend to others, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Beloved, and if Paul asks for prayer, how much more should we? Whether you're a pastor or a church member, life is hard. We know from experience Spiritual warfare is real. And we are weak. We are constantly in need of prayer. Think about like praying, asking for prayers regarding the workplace, our disciplines, the season of life that we're in. Asking for prayers to help us resist temptation. Asking for prayers for boldness to preach the gospel. Paul certainly did in his letters. Ask Him for prayers that we remain steadfast in the midst of hardship. Beloved, one of the most vulnerable things you can do is ask for someone to pray for you. It is through that very request you're making known that you're in need of help. And one of the most loving things that we can do is pray. Going before God approaching the throne of grace on behalf of fellow brothers and sisters, pleading for God's grace and his help for them in their lives. In fact, it is through our prayers for others that show our cares and concerns for them, their situations, their souls, their well-being. It shows that we are dependent upon God to do for them what they nor we can do for them. We are seeking the Lord on their behalf. So it is a very loving thing. Beloved, whether you know it or not, many people would agree, myself included, that all of us have a real bittersweet relationship with mirrors. Like a real bittersweet relationship. You know, you walk by them, and when you do, you glance at yourself, whether or not you want to. Sometimes you're just staring at yourself in the mirror, and sometimes you like what you see. You know, the fit is fresh, the haircut is on point, the shoe game, man, is on fleek. Like, man, you really feeling yourself sometimes. Like, man, you know you look good. And then other times... You don't like what you see. You notice the hair loss, the bags in your eyes, the weight that you have gained. You know, one of the things that I really appreciate about a mirror is just how real it really is. Regardless of how you think you look or how you feel you look, the mirror will unapologetically show you the real you, like this is how you really look. beloved our prayer life it also serves as a mirror not a mirror of our physique but a mirror of our hearts for our prayer life shows us our care life what we truly care about and paul is exhorting us to pray for one another for each other to be in our hearts to be on our cares and be in our prayers Beloved, if God's will being done and church members are a part of your cares, it will be evident in how you pray. So, beloved, what is your prayer life in regards to the members of the church? What are your prayers like for the body? May we be a people who pray for one another. Look at verse 26. Paul says, Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Now, my single brothers, please put up your chapstick, for I know this is your favorite verse in this morning's passage. Notice that Paul said a holy kiss. Okay? Holy kiss. But what's going on here is that this was the appropriate greeting throughout the Greco-Roman culture. It's a type of greeting that they would give to both family and friends, and it depicted love and affection. In our culture today, it is likened to a sincere hug or a good, really good dap. But who did Paul tell them to greet? He says, greet all the brothers and sisters now when he says all he means all that's the greek word for all all so what that means is jews gentiles black white poor rich white collar blue collar he's exhorting all of us to have this affectionate greeting without partiality because god through the gospel has made us a family in christ jesus here we see that the gospel crosses sociological boundaries. So we are truly a family, and it, to be, it is to be evident in our greeting. So we greet, with, we greet one another without partiality. This affection demonstrates Christ-like love. As we greet all, without, regardless of ethnicity, age, class, life stage, Paul exhorts us to greet all with affection. Beloved, we see here that though we have a greeting team, it is the church that is the hospitality and greeting team, that we are to greet one another with sincere affection. Now, this doesn't mean that we are to go out our way and to greet every single brother and sister every single Sunday, but that we are to have a disposition to greet without partiality. NBC, I'll be honest, I've been very encouraged by this church's hospitality. By God's grace, I do believe that we do this well, that there is an eagerness and a readiness to greet one another. Like soon as service ends, brothers and sisters are getting out their seat and looking for people to talk to, visitors and members. It is so encouraging. Beloved, may this continue. And may our hospitality and our homes be as evident. May our dinner tables be as diverse as our church greetings because God has made us a family. This exhortation, it also debunks the habit of members arriving right at service, right when service starts and dipping immediately afterwards. It debunks it. Because how can we genuinely greet one another if we treat the gathering like a fast food service? We get in, we get fed, and we get out immediately. How can we truly greet one another affectionately if that is our posture? This exhortation should lead us to come early and eagerly and affectionately to where we create margin. For loving interactions with one another. That we arrive early as we can and we stay late. And then not only that, notice that Paul didn't say be greeted. He said greet one another. Which means that we are to be the ones who take the initiative. That we don't wait for somebody to come to us. Instead, we go to them with love and affection. With the intent to encourage them in the Lord. Beloved, I've been encouraged by this, and may we do this all the more. Look at verse 27. Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. Here Paul wields his apostolic authority. He knows that Christ has spoken through him to this congregation, and he wanted all of the members of the church to hear it. Like in our scripture reading, it's likely that this would have been read in the corporate gathering. It was back then, and it is now common for passages of Scripture to be read in the gathering, even long passages, like a whole letter. It's important for us to remember that with this exhortation, it's important for us to be mindful that he is concerned about their sanctification, the sanctification of all the members, those who are doing well by God's grace, those who have been engaged in sexual immorality, those who are idle, those who are weak, those who are discouraged, all of them needed to hear this word for their progress in Christ, for their encouragement and their repentance. Because as sheep, a sheep loves to hear the voice of their shepherd, and they need to hear the voice of their shepherd, so do we. Need to hear the voice of our chief shepherd Jesus, and he speaks to us through the word, which is why we prioritize the gathering. God commands us to not forsake assembling together, God speaks to us through the reading and preaching of his word for the edification of his people, regardless of how you're doing spiritually, whether by God's grace you are doing well and flourishing or you're struggling, you need, you need, you need to hear God's word for your sanctification and for your encouragement. We need to feast upon the word by faith. We need to be reminded of God's glorious gospel. We need to be reminded of God's precious promises. For then our faith is strengthened. As Romans 10 says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And here Paul exhorts us to not only be concerned about ourselves, but to concern ourselves for other members. He says, I charge you that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. This instructs us to have an outward focus to see to it that all hear the word. And so we're to have this desire that we want other members to hear God's word being proclaimed out of a care and concern for their souls. Out of a care and concern for their relationship with Christ. And because we know that they need to hear God's word. So what this means for us, beloved, is that we're to be a people who take notice as to who has and hasn't been regularly attending the corporate gatherings. And we're specifically to be mindful of those who are not attending. We're to take notice of it. And where we see a persistent neglect, one, it should provoke us to be concerned about the souls of members. And two, we're to be spiritual EMTs and go after them for their good, for the good of their souls. Checking in, hey, brother and sister, I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing spiritually? What church are you gathering at? Like, man, how are you doing? How's your soul? Beloved, this is the work of the entire congregation. Paul tells the church, I charge you to be mindful that this word needs to be read to all. And so the congregation will look around. Oh, this brother and this sister ain't here. They need to hear this letter. We need to go after them. Beloved, we've committed to this in church membership that we will exercise an affection and care and watchfulness over each other. The reality is, when it comes to the Christian faith, our faith is personal, but it is not private. So we are to treat it as such, going after fellow brothers and sisters who have been neglecting the gathering. Because we are concerned for their souls. May we do this. And Paul concludes... Verse 28, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul gives a salutation of blessing. There's a word of grace. The unmerited favor from God. As you journey throughout 1 Thessalonians, you would notice that he began the letter with grace from the Lord. And he concludes the letter with grace from the Lord. Now, one may wonder, well, what is so special about grace? In the words of John Newton, it is amazing. Beloved, this word grace, it encompasses God's work of salvation. We are saved by grace alone. We are justified by the grace of God. Our sanctification, it is a work of God's grace, and if we're going to progress in our sanctification, we are in dire need of the grace of God. We are never not in need of God's grace. We will never get over it. And those who are well acquainted with God's glory and holiness and with our own sinfulness are well aware of how precious grace truly is. And we praise God for his grace, that he has lavished it upon us in Christ. It is by his grace that he will complete his sanctifying work in us. You know, Michelangelo, he killed it with the sculpture of David. Great job. Fantastic. But it pales in comparison to what God is doing and what God will do in the lives of all who are in Christ Jesus. That one day we will look just like Jesus, freed from sin's presence, having glorified bodies. And on that day we will know that the sole reason that this happened is because God, who is faithful, has chosen to be gracious towards us. Praise be to God. Let's pray.